me, Brandon, service pastor here. When she said all of the, the cool people on the team, I don't think she was talking about me, so there are cooler people than me here if you wanted to join the team. Last week we uh, went through Ecclesiastes. It's a very encouraging book. It opens with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And uh, we kind of saw that this is the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes and it only gets more cheery from there. But we concluded last week that though Ecclesiastes feels very grim and a little pessimistic towards life, it actually gives us a clear image of the reality of the fallen world we live in, that the world that we actually live in is not perfect. It's, got, it's messed up. Things don't always go as we feel they should. They're not always fair. It's an unbalanced world we live in, and that's the depiction we get from Ecclesiastes. But when we do everything with God, there is hope and joy and pleasure even amidst the struggles of life. Basically, the point is, if life is going to be unfair and unstable, better to cling to God within it. It's better to do it with God than without Him. And today, we're finishing off our series, our little mini-series called Solomon's Wisdom, and we've been looking at the kind of books attributed to him, either directly or indirectly, depending on who you ask. But either way, he's definitely associated with them, uh, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and now today, Song of Songs. And so we'll close out with an overview of Song of Songs, one of the most strange books in the Bible. Uh, this book is a very different style and feel to Ecclesiastes, as you'll see pretty quickly, and definitely different to Proverbs, but I hope by the end of this message, we'll kind of get a greater or a deeper sense of what we concluded with Ecclesiastes, that a life lived in closeness with God is a better life, and we really are going to see this kind of depiction, this intimate depiction, the closer the better, the closer we can come to him, the better. You get a good sense of the nature of Song of Solomon right from the very start. So I'll read verse 2 and 3. Gives you a little feel for what we're going to be getting into. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. It goes on from there. What kind of book is this? What kind of book of the Bible is this? When we read that, it's, I've, that's the immediate feeling we might get. What's, what's going on here? I thought I was reading the Bible. This is not Bible. This is not how I see the Bible. It's still technically wisdom literature, as it's defined, but definitely very different from the other wisdom literature books that we've been going through. This one is a unique writing style. Song of Solomon is love poetry. If you didn't catch that from the beginning, you're probably not very familiar with love poetry. Guys, get familiar with love poetry. It's a good thing. No, I don't know anything about love poetry. Song of Solomon is love poetry. Now, many scholars and a lot of Christians have genuinely asked, why is this book in the Bible? Why is this book in the Bible? Love poetry is fine. You want to recite some poems to your beloved, as it said in the text? That's a good thing. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with love poetry. But how does it fit in with the overall narrative of the Bible? The book appears to have nothing really spiritual within it at all. When we look at it at first glance, it's just a lot of romance. It's got nothing on our modern romance novels, and movies, and TV shows when it comes to the way it depicts this. It's certainly not as graphic as things that we can see on our TVs, but we still see a pretty vivid and descriptive depiction of desire and passion between a man and a woman just before and just after they enter into marriage. And as you can imagine, there's some vivid imagery. This includes some very sensual imagery that explores all five senses. All five senses are addressed in one way or another throughout the book. This is the kind of stuff that makes us American Christians very uncomfortable. I was like, why do we have to do this book? It was this one or Job, but Job's just too long. Sex in the Bible, that doesn't seem right. How should we read this book? 
when we come to this definitely peculiar book in the Bible. How many of you have read this book? Almost all of you, almost all of you. And did you enjoy that book? Careful how you answer that, no. It's a peculiar book. How should we read it, though? Because there's a lot of opinion on how we should read this. And my, that's our goal for today. As it has been with all three of our, our books, right? When we're doing an overview, we don't have time to get into all the depths. There's so many things that we could unpack in every single, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. But what we want to do, or what our goal today, and as it has been, is to hopefully get you a better understanding so that when you read it, maybe you read it again if you've already read it, or read it for the first time, that you have a better understanding of what you're reading and you can hopefully grab something out of it in a new way after today. So let's, let's begin. Let's first take a step back, as we like to do when we're doing a, kind of an overview of a book. Let's start at the beginning, verse 1-1, which is where we get our title and the author. In 1-1 it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And I'm reading a bit of a mix today. I'm reading the ESV um, and some NIV, but I think the ESV is going to be behind me the whole time, so, you know, you should bring your own Bible, that way you can read along in whatever translation suits you. <laughs> but I like the ESV better when it comes to this text, uh, because it sticks much closer to the Hebrew, which, for the poetry, is, I think, important. So, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is where we get the title, and sometimes it's translated Song of Songs, sometimes Song of Solomon. Depending on the translation, at least in English, it's, it varies quite a bit. We have like over 30-something translations uh, into English, and uh, all of them have their own opinion of which ones it should be. But I believe the book is self-titled. It titles itself Song of Songs. It is Song of Songs. This means the greatest, the absolute best of songs. This is a Hebrew expression for something that is the greatest. And you see it a lot throughout the, the Old Testament, right? We see Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Holy of Holies, the Song of Songs. So it's the best of the best. They didn't really have a way to say the greatest song, so they said the Song of Songs. And some question, is Solomon the author of this Song of Songs, this love poem? As with many books of the Bible, there's a lot of debate on whether or not Solomon is the author. Uh, but either way, he's definitely, it's either he wrote it, it's a collection of his writings, or it was written in his honor. Um, one of those two, and in his style. He's kind of the father of wisdom literature in the Bible. He was the kind of creator of that. And so it was written in his style uh, either way. Uh, so... As I understand it, and as I accept it, Solomon is the author. I feel like that's pretty clear that it's of his writing. We know that love poetry was not uncommon in that time. There actually was some recent discoveries, not about, well, recent, about a century ago, of uh, a lot of uh, love poems that, uh, from that era. So it, was, it wasn't uncommon for love poetry to be written. And we know that in 1 Kings 4.32, talking about Solomon, it says that he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. So he's, he had a lot of work out there. Was, he went for the, you know, put it all out there, and then we get the best of the best, which I think is what we see. In Proverbs, we don't have 3,000 Proverbs, uh, but we have the best of his Proverbs. And here we have the Song of Songs, the best of his songs. And some argue that this is actually, the Song of Songs is not one written song from beginning to end, but actually a combination of a few songs uh, some argue five. Some have very different opinions. I've, I've never seen so many different opinions when I went through different commentaries and varying so broadly. But I hope to give you a good kind of overview to help you navigate this text better for yourself. But uh, either way, it's, it's, his, it's, it's definitely a collection or one song, and it does follow one uh, line of thought. So either way, we get this collective of his best of the best of his songs, of the 1,005 songs that he's written. It's certainly not 1,005 songs put together. That I can assure you of. This is love poetry. But again, how are we meant to read it as a book of the Bible? How are we meant to read this as a book of the Bible? 
Is this an allegory? Is it a collection of analogies? Or is it just simply a love poem between two lovers? The more I read this and the more I research it, I would say the answer is yes. So I hope that helps you guys. When you're reading it, the answer is yes. It's a bit of, it's a bit of them all. And uh, again, in other words, people would argue very strongly for one or the other, but I do believe that we can see all of them, as we can often see. It is often the case in the Bible, right? There's always a certain depth we're meant to dig into when we're reading through the text. To seek out the truths that lie within. This was put in the Bible for a reason. And because it's a part of the canon, because it's a part of our scripture today, we know that it's there for a purpose. And just as all scripture, it is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. Meaning it has the authority of God himself and it has something to say to us today. And that's what I definitely want to encourage you with. This book may be weird or maybe odd or maybe something that you're not sure how to dive into, but it has something to say to us. It has something from the Lord for us today. But this book is also poetry, meaning it's a bit intentionally cryptic and ambiguous. It uses flowery language. It uses imagery. It's not speaking directly. It's not like the story of David and Goliath where we see this kind of occurrence of events that have played out. And we can still find meaning in it, but it, this is like already, it's, it's not even starting at that level. It's meant to be intentionally ambiguous. It's, it's not meant to be taken literal, but is instead filled with all of this really beautiful and flowery imagery. And I want to give you just one thing, and then kind of a, a tool, if you will, as you're reading through this, uh, kind of a bit about the imagery because when you read through this love poem, you may find some of the imagery a bit odd. It doesn't feel, it feels a bit odd. I'll give you one example. Like the main character, uh, or the, the man in the, in the story, tells, talks about the woman and compares her to a horse of Pharaoh's stable. Today, if you compare a woman to a horse, it's not really that flattering. And so we might be like, what, a horse? She's like a horse? That's weird. But a lot of the imagery used is not necessarily visual, but rather seeks to emphasize a comparison of a certain quality. So Pharaoh's stables only housed the best horses. He didn't have like shabby horses, ones that had flaws, ones that were weak. He only had the best of the best that would make it into his stable. And that's, so we see a lot of the comparisons not being based off of a visual understanding, as we would, I think, often more associate when it comes to poetry, especially love poetry, uh, but it's actually dealing more with the quality of the thing um, that's used. So the two lovers will kind of compare all these different things, all these different objects of, of significance, uh, but not necessarily making a visual comparison. So that's important, I think, to kind of note. So you're like, what? He's her... I think another one is like her belly. Her belly is like a bale of hay. Nothing I would say to my wife. I don't know if that's your thing. Maybe she likes it. But his arms are like bars of gold. That's okay. I'd, maybe. Maybe. I could see that one. Your hair is like a stampeding goats. Also a bit odd. Also a bit odd. Some of them are a little bit, are really easy to kind of grasp. And you can see, okay, I can see the quality there. But some of them are like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. There's another one. Her neck is like the Tower of David. And uh, it's the only mention of the Tower of David. We have no idea what it even looked like, but apparently it was neck-like in some nature. But so, just so you know, when you're reading it, you might be like, this is, I don't know. I don't, I'm not feeling the love, man. This is weird. It's a different time, and it's going more for a lot of times the quality that would have been known, especially in that era, uh, that... And we don't have time to get into all of them because it's just too much. But uh, just so you know, there is, uh, as you read it, just keep that in mind. Keep this in mind that it is coming out of a different era than what we have uh, today. And the imagery used doesn't always maybe make sense visually, but all of the imagery is meant to depict the beauty the two lovers see in one another. 
So it's always positive. So if you're thinking, what, is he, does he not like her anymore? No, it's, it's good stuff. All of it is good stuff. Song of Songs is a love song between two lovers at its core. That's what you read when you read through it. But it's also an analogy. And all throughout the text, you will see again and again all of these beautiful analogies. I, I went through one commentary, and they broke it down to every single mention of every single thing as some sort of analogy for either our relationship with God or Christ. Or I mean, it was, it was too much. I felt like, uh, I, maybe you're stretching a bit on that one. I mean, every single thing, every single image used as, an, as some sort of analogy. And that it might be so. We're not going to do that today. It would be way too much. Uh, but there are analogies in it, but I think more clearly you see an allegory in the story as a whole, and we will look at that a bit later. I think the best way to understand this book, when you kind of take a step back before you get into it, is to see it as these affirmations from God. These affirmations from God. So you see this love poem, you see this kind of tale between these two lovers and their kind of uh, their relationship growing together. But we also see these affirmations. We see first an affirmation in the text itself, very bluntly in our face, an affirmation of the beauty and intimacy of the love between a husband and wife. We see an affirmation also of God's love for his people as an analogy. For Israel, especially in the Old Testament, and this is how it's been, it was read for centuries uh, by the rabbis. And we see an affirmation of the love we are meant to experience in the intimate and personal relationship we have with Jesus today. And we will look at that a bit more in depth at the end. Let's talk about the plot, because there is a plot, or is there? When you read through it, it's really hard to know. It's hard to see the plot. Is there a connecting plot from beginning to end in this story? And I would say, well, yes and no. Uh, because I do believe when I read it, when I've studied it, that there is a plot that does flow in the text. There is kind of an underlying story of what's happening um, about this kind of this young woman and this young man and their deep affections and love for one another and their journey to marriage. There is this kind of story happening. But on the other hand, no in the sense that it's not linear. So if you read it from beginning to end and look for this kind of this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, you won't see it, because there's like all of these random things happening, and like suddenly they break out into poetry, and then they're together, and then they're not together, and what's going on now? It's, it's really hard to follow looking at it linear. But I believe this is a cool thing, because it's a, a perfect, it, it conveys perfectly what love can actually feel like. I mean, the whole thing is an expression of love, and love is not neat and clean, if you've ever been in love, you know. It's not neat and clean. It's not linear by any means. It's wavy and messy, and it can feel like you're swirling in it. And when you read through this book, you get that sense. You're like, I don't know what's happening. You feel a bit confused. And I think it kind of conveys the message that it's trying to convey of love and the love, the kind of lostness they feel in their love for each other. So I believe it's intentional. It's not just they threw some things together and like, well, whatever, it works. I think it's a very intentional book. And what I want to do now is kind of give you a quick run-through of what I see as the storyline in the text. What's kind of happening behind the scenes, behind all of the poetry, behind all of the scenes that you see. Just to kind of, I find it, when I, when I can wrap my brain a bit around the overall narrative of what's actually happening, it makes the text itself easier to grasp. So you don't feel quite so lost at what's going on. And then you can gain a greater sense of the depth and the meaning and the relevance from the text itself. And you can kind of get connected with it in a better way. And I hope that as you read it in the coming weeks, after we've kind of gone through this, that you have a better concept of the narrative and that it really does help you to grasp some of the deeper things that God really has for you maybe in this book. Before we walk through the plot, let me just introduce you to our characters. We have three main characters in the book. We have the young Shulamite woman. 
we have a shepherd, and we have King Solomon. These are the three main characters, but we also have another group that changes throughout, uh, and it's kind of like, depending on the translation, some people call it others, some people call it chorus, and it's like this group of people that may represent different groups of people at different times throughout the text. It's very unclear, but they kind of chime in and urge the two lovers on. Maybe they come in agreement with the woman or in agreement with the man, or they ask kind of rhetorical questions of the lovers, and we don't really, they're not really good, positive or negative. They just kind of throw in their opinions from time to time, as happens with people from outside when we're in love, right? Everybody just kind of throws in their opinions. It's kind of the feeling you get. It's just like this voices that kind of chorus in every now and then. But here already we have some debate about the characters. Some would say very firmly that the shepherd and Solomon are the same person whereas others would strongly debate that they are not, and they're two different people. There are many, many theories about this book when it comes to this particular part of the, of the text. Is Solomon and the shepherd the same person? And I want to say, personally, I side strongly with the opinion that the shepherd and Solomon are the same person. I see it as the text, as the text is built it seems very, very unlikely, and the arguments against it I find very weak, that Solomon is a separate character to the shepherd. And what's important, though, is how we understand this will really determine how you interpret the text. And so I would say, if you're, if you're not sure, then you should read it in two different ways. Because if you're like just reading the text to see what happens you're going to just end up kind of lost in what the, what's really going on and what these things mean. But you should decide, am I going to go with the shepherd and Solomon are the same person or shepherd and Solomon are different? Because it really changes the way and gives different meaning to the text, which is why there's such a wide variety of opinions on this. It's, and again, the book is intentionally ambiguous. So here's kind of how I see uh, the connecting plot taking some creative license to help you digest it a bit. So we have this girl. We have this Shulamite girl. And she, we're introduced to her. She's working out in the fields. We know that her, her father has passed away. And possibly her mother too, we don't know. But her brothers have kind of taken over uh, this, this land that they've inherited. And they don't really like her. They're a bit mean to her. You kind of have this, uh, you know, Cinderella story feeling going on. Like she's like the, the stepchild that gets kind of pushed out to do all the work. She's doing all the housework at home. She's doing all the work out in the field. Uh, and it says so much that she says she's dark-skinned. It's not a race thing. It's saying that she is sunburned. She's out in the fields all day. She's the one doing all the work. And having dark skin showed was a... Was in, when you're working out in the fields all day, showed that you were a bit lowly, right? That you didn't have, that you had to go out and work. You didn't have people, you didn't have servants, you didn't have people taking care of you. You were the one out doing the work. And so she kind of emphasizes several times through the text that she's amazed that, that he loves her when she's so dark-skinned, when she's just this kind of lowly working girl. So she meets this shepherd. Good thing she was out in the fields because there's the shepherd out there. And they seem to hit it off pretty quickly. We see them throughout, again, throughout the text, we see these different meetings of her and the shepherd, interactions, it gets a bit heated. They exchange some very passionate expressions of their affection and love for each other. They're drawn to one another. They start to seek after each other. She's following him, she and he following her. But she doesn't know who the shepherd is. Not really, not where he comes from. Several times she asks, you know, where do you come from? Where do you, where do you take your sheep at night? Where do you rest? Where do your sheep rest at midday? And all of this is to depict that she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know where he's from. Really wondering who this guy really is. Like, where is, what is his family? Where, is his, where does he call home? But she still is head over heels for him. And he, for her, they're in love Needless to say, they grow deeper in love and decide they will get married. But before they do, he says, before we get married, I have to go and take care of some business 
down in the south, so he leaves. And while he's away, the young woman misses him greatly. She's wounded that he's gone. And then we enter her dreams. And this is where the text gets really confusing. If you don't catch it, you'll miss that there's actually a lot of it is her dreaming. So in Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, whatever, 3.1, it says, on my, uh, sorry, on my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. So she's talking about a dream. I was, I was seeking him in my dream, but I couldn't find him. And we've maybe had a similar experience, right? When you're having a, a dream, maybe you have a bit of anxiety, you're anxious, and you're kind of wanting this thing, you're seeking this thing, but you can't quite get to it. You're like glued to the floor or whatever it might be. That's the experience she's having. Another one says, and there's several, but I'll just read this other one. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. And that's in 5.2, Song of Solomon 5.2. And there it goes on where we see him kind of reach his hand through the door and kind of leave some myrrh, which was a, a typical thing um, in that time period to leave a kind of a scent on the handle so that when the woman would grab the handle, she would smell and kind of think of the man. But this happens all in her dream. And then there's one other dream where it's almost nightmarish, where she is, she's even beaten by a watchman as she's looking. And all of this, all the dreams seem to depict her ang- anxiousness. She has anxiety. She longs to be with her lover, and yet he's not there. Maybe there's some doubt creeping in. It's been an unknown amount of time. He's been gone. How long will have to wait? Where is he? And that you'll see also depicted in the text when she's longing for him, but he isn't there. Then we see a host coming up to the village. So many that this great pillar of dust fills the sky. I'm not using all the flowery language because it's... I'm just not going to. And she asks, who is it? And then they tell her, it's King Solomon is coming. So she gets closer, never seen the king before. And what's this? Her lover, the shepherd, is actually King Solomon himself. Now I believe this because the text immediately switches where we see the kind of, the same exact speech that was given from the shepherd is now taken over by Solomon. The same flowy, flowery language, but now from King Solomon himself, and she addresses him as her beloved. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of images of passionate intimacy throughout there, uh, where they're, they're so close to one another that they, they're kind of, you see this kind of intense moment building and building and building, and then it suddenly Ends, and I think a lot of the times we see that as these dreams or maybe it's moments where they are resisting their temptation. Either way, it then finally concludes with them being married. And in chapter 8, we see the language switch from a language of longing to one of experiencing each other, where their marriage is consummated and they finally know each other intimately young woman is taken into Jerusalem, into the banqueting hall of her king, and poetically exclaims, I love the way this is written in two, chapter 2, verse 4, he brought me into the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. And that's kind of how we see their relationship read it, reach its pinnacle. Again, not, it's not a linear book, but that's how I think we see it conclude. The book itself ends quite abruptly just kind of seems to just stop. And we're left not really knowing how it ends. What happens next? But I think, again, it's a fitting end, and I think it's an intentional end, as love is not something that can be wrapped up easily into a nice, neat little bow. Love is something that continues on. You can't just sum up love as this is what happened, and that's love, and that's, that's it. It continues through life. And so the book ends abruptly because there is no conclusion to a love story. It just keeps going and keeps growing and changing over time. So, with the next hour of our time, what's the point? 
You get, hopefully everybody got a better overview of the book, kind of feel like, oh, I'm ready to read it now, maybe a little bit. Everybody awake? There are two things I want us to recognize when we read this book, and these will be our, our two main points for today. Number one, this book is a depiction of God's intention for and desire for, sorry, intention for desire, intimacy, and sex. It's a beautiful gift of the Lord. It's a great part of who we are, a part of our creation, our DNA, and it's meant to be experienced and enjoyed fully with great pleasure. But for us to be able to experience it at its best, it must be within the confines of God's design, which is marriage. This is how God ordained and designed it to be enjoyed. And this book depicts the marital relationship and its sensuality, leading to and entering into marriage. It expresses the two lovers longing for one another, but it's not until the time of their marriage that the woman finally says, there I will give you my love. At that point. And there's a tagline you'll see throughout the text, and this is in 2735 and 84, and I'll read just one of those, 27, it's exact same wording in all three of those especially right as things kind of get really intense, we see her chime in and address this chorus and hear as daughters of Jerusalem. And she says, I adjure you, or I plead with you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This often, again, follows some pretty intense and sensual imagery. The message is, I believe, pretty clear. We're, we see these two longing for one another, not just because they want to cuddle and maybe have a good conversation. They want each other sexually. They have a passionate and healthy attraction to one another. And so again and again, she pleads, these three times, she pleads with the chorus, this kind of unknown group, again here, daughters of Jerusalem, that they not push the relationship too hard. Don't push us too hard. Don't get us too over, far over the edge. We don't let us go further than we should before our time. Don't stir up the love. Don't awaken the desire more than it needs to be, not before it pleases, meaning before the time is right and it is the right framework within marriage. And I believe this is really confirmed when we see the transition. So she's saying again and again, don't awaken. But then the woman says in eight, chapter, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 5, under the apple tree, I awakened you. The language has changed. There's no need to hold back anymore or try to refrain from awakening that desire. The young woman has awakened him. I am imagining that you guys know what that means. Sex is a beautiful thing, and sexual attraction is a powerful thing. As Christians, we often speak of how we want to step into God's plan. I want to do what God's will for my life is. I'll say amen. But then so often we see this very liberal ideology when it comes to sex. God has a plan for sex, and it goes all the way back to creation itself when God created us. Genesis 2, 23 through 24. The man said, this is, how, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united or clings, as a, I like as a better translation, united or clings to his wife. And they become one flesh. In marriage, a man and a woman are united to one another. They are to hold fast to one another, to cling to one another. And it is within this framework we, fully, we can truly become one flesh together. Sex is the, most beautiful, is the most beautiful when we become completely exposed and vulnerable to one other. So that there is nothing hidden between us. Sex within marriage is a way of being so open to another that you know each other as you know yourself. Of course, this is not done perfectly because we're human and we live in a fallen world, but anything done within God's framework 
and in his plan will always be the best way to experience it. Because God wants what's best for us. And I just want to encourage you guys, I know a lot of you are single and still young, and it's a good thing to keep in mind, especially when reading a book that's so sensual. Of course, God gives us grace, no matter what your past is, no matter what we've done, and I thank God for that, that God is gracious and forgiving to everything that we do, and we can still move forward into that good framework, no matter what. Um, and just knowing that it's what's God's best for us, no matter what our past looks like, is a good thing to have in mind. As you read through this text, you will see desire and sensuality and sex beautifully depicted. And I think with a carnal mind, this can lead us to even having lustful thoughts, right? Tells us more about ourselves than the text, though, doesn't it? But in the right mindset, a God-centered mindset, we will be able to better grasp the depth and the beauty of sex and how it is best enjoyed and most satisfying when done within this framework that God has designed for us. So, all that done. You guys still with me? We're moving into point number two. We've got to move fast. This one I want to take some more time in. The second thing I want you to consider when reading this text is to see it as an allegory. To see it as an allegory the, of the intimate love and commitment between a husband and wife is an allegory for the love between Jesus Christ and the church entire, as well as the love between Jesus and each and every one of us individually. This is not a new concept for us. We see this in the New Testament quite perfectly depicted in Ephesians 5, 24 through 27. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, as, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Song of Songs is a narrative of a man and a woman deeply in love with each other. You can't read it and not see that. Our relationship with Jesus is compared to the relationship of a husband and wife in love. He has purified us with his word. Throughout this life, we are being cleansed and sanctified that we may be presented to him, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, perfect and holy in every way. The language here echoes one of intimacy. Of course, not erotic intimacy, but the intimacy within a marriage is as an allegory is an allegory in its own right for the complete exposure we have before one another complete openness just as we have before Christ we are completely exposed and bare before him meaning he knows us through and through better than we could ever know ourselves he sees us and we're given this option this opportunity to open ourselves up to him as well to say that we love him and that we are loved by him and to give him our all in all, to truly surrender ourselves to him. Of course, his love is so much greater than anything we could ever give in return, right? But as 1 John 4.19 reminds us, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Let me get a little personal, if that's okay. I'm not, by any means, I don't think anybody would call me an overly emotional person, especially in the way that I communicate. But I have to say, when I was reading through and studying this book, it brought me to tears more than once. It hit me so hard. As I read the way these two express the deep love they have for each other, and how they see each other so perfectly, flawlessly, in everything they say and do. 
it challenged me. It challenged me. Yes, it challenged me, of course, in my own marriage, that I need to love my wife more passionately and intimately. But what led me to tears, what I believe was the more important challenge that God placed within my heart, is do I love Jesus this way? Do I love Jesus like that? It's one thing to say, I love Jesus, but am I in love with Jesus? Is he the love of my life in that powerful way that I could write love poetry to him because I love him so deeply? So I also challenge you, are you in love with Jesus today? Are you in love with Jesus? We know that we are loved by Jesus. I'm sure you've heard Jesus loves you. It's a pretty well-known saying. The woman says this in the text in response to the man's longing for her. So he has just expressed how much he loves her. And her response is, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. The Song of Solomon 710. Is Jesus loves you a bumper sticker ideology for you? Or a deep personal truth that resonates in every part of you, every, to the core of your being? I am his and his desire is for me. He loves me. I know he has sacrificed everything himself for me. And he is preparing and purifying me for himself. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Jesus says in John 15, 3 through 4, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. He has cleansed us, right, through his word. Remain in me as I also remain in you. This is echoed in Song of Songs 2.16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you're loved? Is this a reality for us, that Jesus is the love of my life, and I am his? I am his. Is that real for you today? I was challenged by this. Maybe I'm the only one. How often do I say, Jesus, I love you? Love always seems so foolish from the outside. And we see that also depicted in the text. This is the words given in response to this other group, right? I said there's this kind of chorus, this other group throughout the text. And the woman has just had this nightmare and she wakes up and she is fearful and she says to them, she says to this group that we don't know and she says, can you please find my love and tell them I'm sick with love for him. I'm, I'm sick with love for him. I can't even go to sleep at night. I'm having nightmares because I miss him so much. And they say this in response in five, nine, verse, chapter 5, verse 9, what is your beloved more than another beloved? The response echoes how the world will call us foolish for being in love with Jesus. They'll call us, who's he? Who's your beloved more than another? Who's Jesus? Isn't, how is that compared to, to any other God, any other belief? Who's this Jesus? Who cares? Who is he compared to any other? The woman then goes on into a long and flowing poetic expression of her deep love for why her lover is something special. He is greater than any other. Why he is set apart. What makes him so magnificent in her eyes. And that's in uh, chapter 5, verse 10 through 16. You can read that. But she closes with this. This is my beloved. And this is my friend. In chapter 5, verse 16. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. The chorus responds in 6-1. Where is your beloved gone? That we may seek him with you. There's a feeling of doubt in their voice. As if to say, he's been gone a long time. 
You sure he's coming back? Maybe you should just give up. Where is he? Let's go look for him together. Hmm? Where's he at? Where is your beloved? Where is this Jesus you talk about? This Jesus you say you love so much. This Jesus you say you've devoted your life to. That you've chosen to follow for all of your days no matter what you face. Who is he? Where is he? Where's he at? That we we want to see him too. Where is he? Can you produce him for us? The woman responds in 6.3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Such certainty. She's unmoved by the opinions of others. She knows who she loves. She knows who she belongs to. She knows she is so loved by him. Do you? Do you know? Is it a certainty in your life? Are you unmoved when afflicted by outside voices? Are you in love with Jesus today? Are you in love with him? I thought about it and wondered, again, how, how often do I simply tell him I love him? Can you remember the last time you just said, Jesus, I love you. I love you. So often when we go to Jesus, it's always based on our needs, right? Jesus, I, I need help. Jesus, help me with this. Save me from this. I need this. I need you for this. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? We go to him with our needs. Lay down all your burdens before him. He gives us, his, his burden is light, right? His yoke is easy. He promises us that. That's, there's nothing wrong with going to him for that. I'm not saying don't do that. But is that all you do? If you did that in a relationship, let me just tell you, won't go well. If you're married to somebody and the only time you ever talk to them is when you need them to do something, I need you to do the dishes today. Oh, I need you to do this. Oh, I need you to do this. It's not going to go well. They're going to get kind of sick of that. Jesus, thankfully, is gracious and never gets sick of us. But how important it is and how revealing it is about our relationship and the nature of our relationship with him if we can't remember the last time we said, I love you, to him. We need to make time to tell him how much we love him. To think of him for who he is. To speak to, his, speak to him and speak of his beauty in poetic imagery. Coming from a place of great longing to be close to him. To be as close as possible. To be so near to him that he is our, the very breath in our lungs that we feel so connected to him? Do we long for that? Or is he just a crutch we use in life? Is he just a go-to when we, got, when we need something, when we need help? Or is he just some distant God that saved us and that's good and okay, God, thank, thank you for, for saving me. And then there's, there's no intimacy, there's no relationship. That's religion. I'm just going to do good things now and then just to, to receive what you've done for me. He doesn't want religion. He doesn't want your works. He wants you. He didn't die for what you can do for him. He died for you so that you can be with him, so that you can in freedom and with full belief and confidence say, I love you. This is my beloved. I am his. He is mine. We belong to each other. He paid for me. I know who I am. Let, us not, let it not be said of us as it's said of the church, as Jesus says of the church in Revelation 2, 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken, some translations, forgotten the love you had at first. Oh, that is my fear for today. And my hope is that we would never forget our first and true love, Jesus Christ in our personal lives, and especially as the church today. So when reading this song of songs, keep these two things in mind. 
Remember to read this book in light of the beauty of God's gift of physical intimacy between a husband and wife. You'll see and feel the passion and the zeal of these two for one another. And see how beautiful it is as something that God has designed and God ordained. And two, when we see it as an allegory, when we take a step back, read it in light of who you are as the bride of Christ. That we would long for him, love him deeply and passionately as he deeply and passionately loves us. Tell Jesus you love him. And when you're reading this book, keep that in mind. In closing, I'll leave you with what I see as a very powerful uh, and very uh, yeah, poetic expression of the complexities of love. It feels a bit dark, but I think, it's, I think its darkness only emphasizes its power, the power of love especially. This is Solomon, uh, Song of Songs 8.6. 8.6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. May we experience this week, the coming weeks over our break, a new and passionate love for Jesus in our lives. One that is as flashes of fire, a flame of the Lord within our hearts that burns, as we sang today, that we would burn as potent and powerful as death itself. And jealousy, not that is, not jealousy in a selfish sense, but one of deep longing with our eyes so fixated on Jesus Christ that we can't see anything else. Our names have been written in his book. We are a seal upon his heart. Let our love for Jesus be a seal within our own. That every day we would tell him we love him and live a life breathed and birthed from our passionate desire and longing to be close to him. Let's live in love with Jesus. I invite the band to come up. As they do, I'll pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this interesting and peculiar text in the Bible and all of the imagery within it. I pray, Father, that everybody here would read it, maybe this week, maybe next week, that they would read it and that you would illuminate yourself in the text for them. That they would see you and their relationship with you in a new light. That it is not something dry, not something distant, not something dusty like some old religion, but something alive and vibrant and filled with love and passion. Let us learn. Teach us, Father, how to love you. We know we are loved by you, but teach us how to love you and to seek you and to long for you in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you